What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. William Shakespeare. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone uh, for joining me and listening this week. Um, January remains, <clears throat> excuse me, January remains off to, to a very hot start in terms of uh, numbers. Um, already broke uh, 100 and, 120 as of this morning, so um, really, really happy to see that. Um, I'm assuming a lot of this is uh, coming in from the Apple uh, side of things since I finally got it uploaded there, um, but uh, obviously that also includes our regular listeners, and I'd like to thank you all uh, for, for doing all that. Uh, in fact, actually I had some feedback for some regular listeners, about three or four of you um, had talked about um, or asked about uh, etymology in terms of crop names. And that's actually something I had meant to do um, in last week's episode, but I forgot to, and I thought, well, I didn't really go into etymology of stuff from last season, so should I really do it? And, um, well, with the feedback, I thought it would actually be a good idea to uh, to do it, because I do want to be more consistent. I know some episodes I really go in-depth on etymology, and some other stuff I haven't, and part of that's just because the etymology relates to stuff that's much more recent, um, but then there's some stuff where I've kind of disregarded that. Uh, basically, I've been... In some cases, I need time to fill. In some cases, um, I just haven't done it because I just felt like it wasn't quite thematic enough. So I'm going to try to be a little bit more consistent going forward. Uh, And I mean that for a lot of different things. But um, anyway, so to that end, uh, I am also going to go over the crops or the etymology for crops that I talked about last season. Now, thankfully, there are not that many. but um, going forward, also, the new ones that we talk about, I'm going to go into their etymology as well. So we'll do etymology, and then we'll go over the new crops, and we'll talk about everything kind of relating to them. Uh, so essentially, the crops we talk about this episode um, will be all old ones in their etymology, and then I'll go over crops that are being domesticated in the, uh, the Fertile Crescent area. Uh, also, plus Anatolia and all that kind of stuff. So, um, won't have quite as many new ones this week, uh, but uh, we will have some new ones. Anyway, um, yeah, so this episode might be a little bit longer than I had initially planned, but here we go. So, uh, first, uh, we need to talk about barley. Uh, it's kind of wheat. Barley comes to modern English from the Old English, berlik, which itself is the adjective form of the Old English bear, and that's B-E-R-E, which was their word for barley. Calling something berlik could have meant something was rough or coarse, or maybe even, uh, it could also mean that it was full-bodied or, or tougher than a standard version. Bear was either descended from the Old Norse bar, or the Proto-Germanic baris, uh, both of which would have come from the Latin far, which also meant coarse grain or grits. Uh, you know, anything that would 
kind of match that would have been called far or far whatever far gramen for grass or something like that <clears throat> next we have oats now we know this comes from the middle english ata which involved from the old english ata all meaning a singular oat grain but what language that is from is unknown um, the only really proposed origin that I was able to find was that it came from the Old Norse itil, which means nodule or node. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, a singular oat grain would technically count as one of these, but it isn't clear why itil became ata and not something like atel first. So there is a missing piece of the puzzle, a missing language, or... Uh, it's just not related to the Old Norse at all. It's not really known. Uh, then we need to get into the other types of wheat, which during the episode last season includes emmer and einkorn. Uh, both are German. Einkorn literally means one grain. Emmer appears to be a shortening or a regional variant of amelkorn. Uh, which can mean either fine or starchy grain, depending on the context. An amel comes from either the Latin amelum, which the Romans took from the Greek word amelon, which is a compound of a, the letter, or the sound in this case, which means, um, which just on its own meant not. And mile, which is mill and mile would be m-y-l-e i think would be the best way to spell it in english um and though that comes from the proto-indo-european word namele and that's n-e-m-e-l-e so uh for the nato phonetic alphabet users nike echo mike echo lima echo <laughs> excuse me so, uh, emmer is meant to be a fine grain that was not crushed or ground within a mill. Now, as for wheat itself, it comes from the Old English hueta, which, uh, which is just their word for wheat. And that, of course, descended from the Proto-Germanic hoaitshus, I believe is the best way to pronounce it. Um... And that means white, which can refer to the, um, the picked grains that have been shelled after a harvest. Or it could also be possibly referring to the white flour you get after you harvest and shell and you ground up the, the seeds. White jazz, uh, among many other words, is related to the Pi word quaid or quite, depending on who you believe has the best pronunciation, uh, which meant to shine. Uh, Caucasus may be related to that, or at least uh, this, this, uh, the Scythian version of Caucasus may be related to that. It, we talked about the etymology of the Caucasus. Remember, it, it, some believe it is um, uh, the Shining Mountains or something along those lines. Now we have the four types of legumes that were domesticated last season. 
Uh, that includes uh, lentils, peas, chickpeas, and herbal. Now, legumes entered into the English either from the French word legume or directly for the Latin legumen. The French would have gotten legume from the Latin legumen as well. So it's just a you know, question of you know, which, uh, where England got it from. Uh, the ultimate der derivation is the same. And that uh, derivation is thought to derive from the Latin legera, which meant to gather. In this case, plants that you would pick by hand and not cut with sickles, like wheat or something along those lines. So uh, any plants that are picked by hand off like a vine or something like that could technically uh, be called legumen. Now, lentil comes to us in English from the French lentille. Uh, it can mean lentil or a freckle, I believe, is another I guess French term, or I guess France relates lentils to freckles in terms of how they look. Uh, now, it entered French from the Latin lenticula. Uh, however, uh, I think all ancient Greek, uh, Old High German, uh, the Old Church Slavonic, all have words that are cognates with lenticula. But no one has been able to construct a common word of origin uh, from Proto-Indo-European, which makes many people think that the original form of lentil entered into Proto-Indo-European or into its, you know, branches afterwards, after, you know, they broke off from Pi. Uh, so it's either from an unknown or an undocumented language. So I thought that was pretty interesting. It's about the most interesting thing when it comes to lentils. Now, uh, pea comes from the Old English pisa, which comes from the Latin pisum, which was a loan word from the Greek pison. Where the Greeks got it from isn't known, but most people think it came from their language from one of their Anatolian uh, neighbors' languages. Uh, chickpea comes from chichpis, uh, which is difficult to assign correctly, but it is either uh, Middle English or early, early Modern English is when you first see it show up in English writing. Uh, it came about during a period that the English language was going through a lot of changes, uh, and it combines an old French word, either chich or chech, uh, with the period's version of peas. Uh, the French got the term from the Latin uh, cicer, or kiker, depending on if you choose to pronounce Latin with the uh, hard C or not. Uh, that term's origins is unknown, but most think it came from the Greek kikeroi, uh, which means pale. And there are a number of chickpea variants that are whiter and pale, so that makes sense. Uh, and I should also point out that technically, while both belong to the family uh, fabakie, uh, they are completely different genus and species. Peas and chickpeas, I mean. So uh, it's mostly English that you'll see them equated, at least in terms of names. Um, at least as far as I was able to determine. I don't think any other language does that like we do. 
Excuse me. Now, that leaves us with the last legume, Ervil. Now, I really could not get a firm definition on this one, but it appears um, to enter into English from the Latin name for the plant, Wikia ervilia. Now, Wikia is related to the Latin verb wincere, which can mean to win, but it can also mean to bind or tie. Uh, Vetch are herbs that grow on vines like grapes, so they're tying themselves around their lattice or pergola or whatever. Hence, there are many types of vetch or wikia. Now, ervila are a type of clam, so apparently something about the bitter vetch reminded them of the clams or their shells. So, ervila does not mean bitter. Uh, so, uh, ervil is also known as bitter vetch. I should have made that clear because I think I mentioned that in that prior episode. Um, so, uh, ervil is just that specific type of vetch. Uh, but some people call it bitter vetch, and there are other types of vetch that are domesticated slightly later, but that one is the one that kind of stood out in terms of the archaeological record and early examples of domestication, which is why I included it in Season 1. Now, we come to, uh, I guess, one of the crops that was domesticated, but wasn't really for foodstuff reasons. Uh, That, of course, is flax. Now, flax evolved from the Old English flix, uh, which itself came from the Proto-Germanic flaxion. It was a variant of the uh, Proto-Germanic word "fle," which meant to plate. Um, and the exact origin of that word is debated. It is either from the uh, Proto-Indo-European root plek, which also meant to plate, like you would plate together the strands of flax to make a garment or what have you. Or it comes from the Proto-Indo-European root with uh, plik, which means to flay or strip, like you would strip the fibers before you were able to or you would strip the fibrous parts of the plant away from the unfibrous parts that you would then use to create your whatever you're using the flax for it's not just clothes you could also use it i think to make rope and twine and things like that so that's kind of a brief rundown of all the stuff from season one uh now i'm going to move into the crops from last episode the start of this season and of course we will begin like we began last uh, episode with sorghum uh, this is the modern latin scientific name uh, remember broomcorn is also one of its names uh, you know one of the more popular ones uh, now sorghum came from the latin word assigned as its genus sorgo uh, sorgo probably evolved from the medieval latin sorghum or suricum which probably evolved from the older classical Latin Syricum, which is why they called it... Oh, sorry, Syricum is what they called Syria. Uh, The crop was called Syricum gramen, or Syrian grass. Uh, The peoples in Syria got the plant through trade either um, from people who got it from India, or they got it from the Arabian Sea, uh, coming up the Red the Red Sea. Uh, so 
it came from the larger Arabian Sea Indian Ocean trade um, or from trade along the Red Sea in Egypt. Um, and we'll talk about those trade links later. They're very important. Uh, and it ultimately doesn't really matter because however it got to Syria, it got there. And then the Romans associated it, it with that area. And then that name stuck uh, in, in English. <clears throat> now, cot uh, is probably the Latinization of the Arabic term of the plant, uh, which they called Alcot. The Arabic is a corruption of either the Amharic name for the plant, Cha'at, or it's a corruption of a Somalian dialect variant like Ka'ad or Cha'at or Ka'ad. All of these language, uh, all those languages are classified as Afro-Asiatic, so it is possible that there was another original word in that ancestor tongue uh, that changed as these languages branched out from each other. Uh, and then once they began to, you know, I guess, um, re-communicate with one another, you know, it evolved further. Um, I should also note that other neighboring language families have terms for the plant that don't bear much or any resemblance to the Afro-Asiatic families, uh, though some do. So it's a question if um, those other non-Afro-Asiatic families either discovered it on their own, which means the word's not related, or they were introduced to, uh, introduced to the plant by people speaking Afro-Asiatic languages. Cot's really useful in determining some of the linguistic links between uh, East African languages, as well as Arabian languages too, for that matter. <clears throat> Next, we have teff. This is the easiest one we'll be covering this episode. Very, very straightforward. Uh, teff is an Amharic word meaning the plant teft. Perfect. No notes needed. Um, and this makes much sense if when you look at a map and you see where the crop was first domesticated and that most people living there speak Amharic natively. And even those that don't speak it natively, it is their secondary language that they definitely know fairly well. Um, though I think a native speaker, they actually might pronounce it closer to, to fi, uh, or uh, there might be an I in the written form, but they don't actually pronounce it, uh, which is something you see in a lot of Semitic languages, which I think is also something that other Afro-Asiatic uh, branches like Semitic do. Now, the other crops I mentioned last week, I'll hold off for now because, again, they're kind of debated if they're actually domesticated at this point, and I'm going to go into more details on them next season. Now, uh, we will go ahead and uh, move into the new crops, the new wave of domestic crops growing in Western Asia. And if you heard that, I'm sorry, but that's my mother's dog. She was groaning. She's having a dream. Uh, I'll try to cut that out. <clears throat> now, uh, we will start with rye. Uh, now, rye comes from the Old English, rig, uh, which is from the Proto-Germanic, ruig, which is itself suspended from the Proto-Indo-European, rigio. I believe it's the 
closest I can get it pronounced. Now, it's possible that wild rye was grown in conjunction with the wild versions of the earliest domesticates that we talked about uh, last season. Um, that, you know, it was uh, around when, uh, you know, oats and um, barley were being domesticated. Um, and it's possible that some semi early domesticated strains uh, evolved from these instances. But if that did happen, um, rye uh, was grown in an extremely small amount compared to these other crops. And domesticated or semi-domesticated strains could have been lost. Uh, they, you know, they could have not continued growing it and those strains died out. Uh, one of the things we get with um, domesticated versions of a lot of plants, uh, they will die without human care. Um, but uh, true domesticated versions, uh, you know, that modern versions of the crop are descended from, don't appear in the Middle East until around 6,500 to 6,000. Uh, at least, you know, they don't definitively show up in the archaeological record until that point. And um, even when that starts to happen, it's found in a very small number of locations compared to other domesticated crops. Um, and that's because rye was not considered a quality crop. Uh, and in, you know, in fact, it doesn't even show up in Europe until, until the Bronze Age. And that's like, uh, I think, um, I forget the exact date, but it's like 2000 to like 1500 BC, somewhere in that range. Uh, because, you know, people in the Middle East didn't really think too much of it. So they didn't bother trying to offer it as trade. But eventually... Uh, somehow the crop uh, gets out of that region and moves into Europe. Um, in most areas around the Mediterranean Sea, though, um, rye is something you would only eat if you were very, very poor or if you were very close to starvation. Um, but rye does have a couple of properties that make it useful beyond merely emergency stores or animal feed, which is another thing it was, it was good for in those regions. Uh, and, and these properties are what cause it to spread into more wide use uh, through more northern regions in, uh, in Europe, at least. And uh, one of those uh, big reasons is that rye is much more resistant to cold than other grasses or wheat as long as you have at least a couple of days where the sun can shine directly onto the plants, uh, they will grow, even if there is snow on the ground, even if the leaves are just above the snow, and they get enough sun every so often, they will, they will continue to, to grow. Um, so this property allows areas with longer winter to grow more crops. Um, in areas with less extreme winters, rye can keep your fields kind of from being overgrown with weeds while it lies, lies fallow. So it was usually placed on fields after harvests in the fall, and uh, it, it was then used as either, excuse me, again, an emergency crop or as animal fodder. Of course, and eventually it was also used as a mash for alcoholic concoctions. Uh, good old rye whiskey as a as a primary example that I'm familiar with. 
Now, um, the second really useful property is that rye grows more easily in soils with heavy clays or that is um, kind of lightly sanded soil is another thing uh, which you know other wheats don't really grow all that well in. Uh, so that's you know rye can be grown if you know even if the weather is fine for other crops you know if the soil isn't good for other wheat you have rye as an option. Um, all that said though, uh, rye does have more susceptibility to certain types of diseases and funguses like uh, ergot. So it has to be watched carefully. Um, and also another kind of problem with growing rye is that it is because of its hardiness, it can sometimes grow unexpectedly uh, and will sometimes even jump to neighboring fields or hang around and grow with spring and summer crops. And this can cause problems with other varieties of wheat uh, because I think sometimes there's like a cross-contamination and it may cause um, weird taste or uh, it, you know, they kind of siphon off some of the um, nutrients that these other crops need. So it kind of lessens their quality and output. Uh, and the rye itself is also kind of stunted comparatively. So, um, it kind of makes things bad. So you do have to keep an eye on rye despite its hardiness. Um, you just have to make sure it's doing what you want it to do. But you don't have to work all that hard compared to some other crops to get it to grow. It will grow fine. You just have to make sure it stays healthy. Uh, or watch it for showing signs of disease. More, uh, more mentally taxing, I guess, than labor taxing. Uh, at least compared to other wheats. Uh, now we should move on to talking about uh, dates or date palms, technically. Uh, that's the actual plant. Uh, now, uh, dates come into the English directly from the old French date, uh, which they got from what appears to be the old, old uh, Provençal uh, dialect, datil, which came from the Latin dactylus, which came from the Greek dactylos. Uh, supposedly, the Greeks used this because of a resemblance between the fruit of the date palm and uh, human digits. Uh, dactylos could mean toe or finger, depending on, of course, the context that the Greek used it in. Um, but um, some think that's just kind of a, um, a folk etymology that was assigned later, and that the actual origin of the term... Uh, actually came from a Semitic language of some type uh, because there is um, similarity between uh, the old Hebrew uh, Degel or the Aramaic Dikla or the Arabic Dakal all meaning date palm and they're you know that's fairly close to, to Dak Tilos um, so that's why some people think that that's just a folk etymology. Now, of course, it's very possible that the Greeks met one of these Semitic languages or people who spoke the Semitic language, and they heard the name and they're like, "Oh, dactyl. Oh, that that or dactylos. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a finger." So they could have misunderstood what the um, you know what the Semitic speakers were referring to. They may have just thought it was happenstance. 
all those are possibilities. Now, um, the exact location that dates were first domesticated is uh, extremely debated. A number of countries in the Middle East um, and North Africa and parts of the Indian subcontinent all claim that they're the origin point. Um, the site of Marigar that I talked about um, last season for kind of the uh, near the Hindu Kush modern-day Pakistan, that area, um, there, they show evidence that there was large-scale date harvests around 7,000 BC, but there is a very big debate as to if those were actually domesticated trees or if they were just, you know, harvesting them from wild forests. So, you know, that's a very real possibility. The area was extremely uh, fertile at that time due to the extra rain and because of all the rivers in the area. Um, the next oldest bit of evidence can be found in eastern Arabia and those date trees are, are evidence of date harvesting uh, shows to between I think 5,700 and 5,500. Though again if they're truly domesticated strains or not is very much in doubt. <clears throat> Whatever the exact case, by 5000 BC, there was widespread date harvests and usages in um, not just Arabia and um, around Marigar, but across all those regions that I talked about before, North Africa, the Middle East, Indian subcontinent, what have you. So... Um, what I think is most likely is that its dates were probably domesticated in a couple of places. Uh, though I do think the Marigar site or one of its early neighboring uh, offshoots or sister sites probably did it first. Uh, though probably not as early as 7,000. I, I don't think there's enough evidence to show definitively that those are not wild dates. Uh, I think probably right around 6,000 or so, um, you begin to see evidence of truly, or those dates are much more likely to be um, domesticated strains. At least that's my opinion. I'm not a forensic uh, archaeologist or um, I don't know enough about botany to say that uh, definitively, but just based on the other circumstances, that's, what, that's why I think it just the whole sum of information. Now, we may come across, you know, a lot more finds. Again, uh, the Marigar sites uh, are still being investigated. I think Arabia is getting a little bit more um, archaeology going on. So I'm sure this will change, but that's where I see things as of now. Um, now, there are a number of different species of dates spread across various regions and their exact relations to one another do not show a clear, direct line of descent and evolution from one source population. Hence, again, why I think it was probably um, domesticated in multiple regions around the same time period. Of course, then we're gonna, now I say that, they're going to find like the missing date link uh, within the next year, <laughs> just, to, just to spite me. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, 
date palms can reach up to 30 meters or 100 feet in height um, and they will grow with either a single trunk or they'll have kind of like a clump um, of I guess a clump of uh, trunks um, kind of branching off from like a singular base um, <clears throat> they grow fairly slowly um, but they can get to over a hundred years of age if you make sure they're maintained properly um, wild date trees are uh, naturally wind pollinated um, but in traditional oasis horticulture or in you know modern commercial locations uh, they are all hand pollinated uh, date palms can either be male or female and only female trees produce fruit um, and male trees produce enough pollen to fertilize up to a hundred female trees uh, most male trees that end up growing are immediately pruned um, and this was probably true in the past and of course is even more likely in modern commercial settings uh, now dates can be and weren't used for way more than just eating the fruits um, they would be turned into syrup which was used to help in the creation of beer uh, in that area um, they could also be crushed and uh, turned into powders which served as like a, a sweetener um, their oil could also be used in cosmetics uh, and of course their leaves and wood were also used in a bunch of different ways um, and that's not even talking about you know the uh, the religious and spiritual spiritual significance to a, a number of faiths um, which we'll go into those kind of things later um, but yeah that's that's kind of what we have for the date um, I guess now we can finish off this new round of crops in the Near East. Uh, and then we will, uh, yeah, so to do that we need to move on and talk about olives. Now, olive came into English directly from Old French. They used the same word. Uh, it entered French from the Latin Olivia. And Latin either picked it up from the Etruscans, uh, where they used Ella. Eleva, excuse me, uh, or from the Proto-Greek Eliwa. Uh, and the Etruscans probably, uh, whatever, wherever the Latins got it from, the Etruscans definitely got their pronunciation from the Proto-Greek, or possibly from the older Mycenaean Greek language, which might have pronounced, um, which might have pronounced a couple of different ways. They've reconstructed it differently. There's some still some mysteries about Mycenaean Greek. They would have uh, pronounced it either Irawa, Irawo, or Iraiwo. Now, the exact uh, period where true domesticated olives emerge is unknown, um, but again, there's evidence for wild olives being turned into oil um, as early. Uh, as 6000 BC and I'm again I'm willing to bet that it happened much earlier than that that's just the oldest evidence we found of it now uh, true domestic sources probably happened sometime between 5000 and 4000 BC uh, and once uh, these domestic 
sources uh, were established, uh, their use expands rapidly throughout the Fertile Crescent and the Eastern Mediterranean uh, during this period. Um, it's a little past the scope of this season, but by 3000 BC, um, there is what you could only describe as a basically commercial production of uh, of olives on Crete, the island Crete, um, and other places. But Crete, I believe, right now has the largest uh, area that's just devoted to the production of olives that have been discovered at that period of time, at that age. Now, um, olives are very versatile, and it doesn't... Um, look like, at least according to what we found in terms of evidence, um, that consumption of olives for food was very high on that list, aside from, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it was used as a dressing or like a drizzle for certain foods that obviously wouldn't show up in the record. But their, you know, their remains and their pits don't really show up in uh, trash bins with other food types at least not at any really high level um, it also appears that they were harvested almost entirely to make oil at least in terms of um, the production facilities that we found um, in fact the word for oil in all European languages are either um, variations of their word for olive or it's a variation on the classical Greek word, excuse me, for olive, uh, olive, Eliah. Um, so, like in English, uh, prior to the 1400s, give or take, uh, the word oil referred exclusively, exclusively to the olive byproduct. <clears throat> now, um, this oil was used for a wide variety of purposes. Um, it could be used as a base for cosmetics, uh, for soaps, paints. Um, it also had medicinal properties. Um, however, it's also probable that the primary use of the oil was for lamps. Uh, this was especially true probably in the Levant and Egypt, where wood was extremely valuable and in extreme, you know, relatively short supply. Um, so they would prefer to use the wood for other things. Um, so this, this uh, olive is, would allow you to save your forests, uh, which would be a, a literal godsend, uh, which that leads into another set of uses for olives and olive oils, uh, religious uses. Um, now, how long... That association has been made is hard to say, but it is very old, and olives and olive oil and olive branches have been used for religious purposes and iconography for a lot of different faiths um, in a lot of different parts of the world, in fact. Uh, now, in terms of quality and rating, um, they did have some kind of... Um, uh, I guess, a standard or uh, scale of what they considered uh, good versus bad olives or olive oil. Um, it's not like ours with the extra virgin and all that kind of stuff. Um, but 
at least from what I've been able to see from sources um, in the Levant, they considered olives from the top of the trees um, to be most um, uh, the the best olives. Uh, they got more sun. They you know they they're more likely to be fully um, ripe, um, and ripeness helped in producing oil. Um, they would of course crush these olives that they're harvesting to make oil with a large stone. Uh, riper olives yielded more oil, and they were easier to crush. Um, I think um, also the uh, the riper olives, they're allowed to kind of be slowly pressed. I think the stones were um, just more gently, I guess for lack of a better term, uh, uh, gently allowed to lower on the oil, and you were able to take your time. Uh, I think it could take, um, I think I think they've done some reconstructive stuff where it could take up to an hour for that stone to finally just pulp out all the oil. Whereas uh, newer olives, olives lower on the tree, uh, they didn't quite yield that type of um, that type of return. They would have to be essentially pulped uh, to get uh, any kind of oil out of it. And of course, you have all that byproduct uh, skins, that kind of thing that would show up in the oil. So they did have a rating system. It's not what we would consider today to be the rating scale, uh, but that is what you're looking at. Uh, now, in terms of uh, olive trees uh, production, um, they typically take around two to three years before they uh, start producing olives. And I think you'll you'll see kind of the year before they're good, they kind of produce these really small, uh, really. I think if it's I think it's supposed to be like a dark green olive. They don't look like they're ripe, uh, but then that next year, you can say okay, those will be the good olives. Uh, now, in terms of uh, height, generally speaking, uh, most olive trees will be between 20 and 30 feet when they reach their their full height. Um, but there are some outliers. I think some can get into the 40 feet area um, or 40 foot range. Excuse me. Uh, now, um, in terms of Age. I think olive trees are supposed to uh, live around 500 years, you know, provided they're reasonably well cared for. However, there are some that are extremely, extremely old. I think um, there's one that's in Portugal that has been estimated to be over, I think it's 3,000 years old. Uh, there is some along the... Um, uh, the Adriatic coast, uh, I think, um, in either Albania or Croatia or Montenegro, where they are, you know, in the 1500 to 2000 year range. Um, I think they've also found one that's in, um, that's near Athens that's like 2500. Um, though I don't know, I don't know how much, you know, truth there is to all of these i'm sure that there are some places that were like oh yes this this olive tree has been producing olives for five thousand years and it was used by such and such to create um you know olives for an emperor or something like that 
Uh, I'm sure that there are some that are over-exaggerated, and obviously there are certain trees you can't really test um, unless you, you actually cut them down, which they don't want to do, understandably so. Um, but, I mean, generally speaking, there are, of course, outliers in terms of height. It wouldn't surprise me that there were outliers in terms of age. So, um, and of course, humans, you know, making sure that the plants well cared for would also contribute to that. Um, but yeah, so I think that's kind of everything. Height, weight, or not weight, but height, age, um, that sort of thing. Oh, uh, there are a lot of different regional varieties of olive trees. I think um, I tried to count the different ones I could find. Um, and there were at least 50, all kind of descended from the, um, the primary... I guess progenitor, uh, which is the um, Olea europea, which, um, yeah, again, uh, I think the oldest olive trees they found, like fossilized, have been um, from like the southern Balkans region of Europe. So um, it grew in other places. Obviously, plants don't care about continental divides unless, you know, there's a vast difference in terms of environment. But um, you could find olive trees all along. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea area, but I think the oldest that they have found evolved in the Southern Balkans. So, but yeah, so that's kind of everything we have for this episode in this region. Um, episodes already over 45 minutes, so that's good. Uh, nice and long, what I was expecting. Um, next week, we will move into the um, more parts of Asia. We'll be middle, moving a little further east, uh, going over some new crops being domesticated there. Um, then we'll be moving on... Uh, that, that might take another two episodes or so. I'm not quite sure yet. I need to kind of put all my notes together and see what we're looking at. But um, at least one more Asian episode, probably two, maybe three. I, I doubt it, but I'll have to double check. And then um, we'll move into Europe and then the Americas, which, excuse me, um, Europe shouldn't take long at all. And North America probably won't either. Um, I'll probably, if there are any domesticated sources, which I'm not sure about, um, well, I guess technically... Uh, Mesoamerica is technically part of North America, so I uh, take that back. Uh, the Americas will probably have uh, one episode per um, continent, north and south, but um, maybe two for South America. We'll have to see. Um, but yeah, um, I'm glad people are really into Season 4 so far, and I hope you'll continue listening. Uh, after we get through with the domesticated crops, we'll move on to domesticated animals, uh, that probably won't take nearly as long. Uh, and then we'll move into some other um, kind of interstitial stuff I want to talk about. But uh, yeah, thank you all for joining me this week. Uh, if you have any questions or feedback, I really appreciate it. Constructive criticism too. Um, please feel free to email me at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter. Uh, or X. I'll post the link to my account that, on the episode description. And of course, you can also comment on any of the YouTube uploads I do. I also live stream on YouTube pretty regularly, at least a couple of nights a week. Um, and you can drop in the chat, ask questions there. I'd be glad to answer. 
But uh, yeah, thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, I hope you have a good uh, day and a good rest of your week whenever you're listening to this. See you all next time. Goodbye.